You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. I thought about moving on to the next chapter, but the relationship between Leah, Rachel, uh, Jacob, and Laban Laban was too important for me to just kind of pass up and not discuss. I know I briefly went over it last week, but there's just so much, and quite frankly, it was something that I was able to share during the women's discipleship, um, and I thought it would be important for us to, you know, hear this here and go a little bit deeper into the story. Now, we've only read from verses 31 35. But I take my sermon from starting from verse 15 to the end, to 35, okay? So just when you have your Bibles open or your phones open, just know that that's where I'm, that's where I'm getting the, uh, our points from and, and everything. So from verses 15 to 35. Now, the Bible discusses a lot of different things, doesn't it? A lot of different things. It talks about finance. It talks about prayer. It talks about emotions. It talks about worship, pleasures, business, everything. A lot of different things. And while the Bible can and I think is brutally honest about those areas, it can also be especially unsentimental when it comes to things like the subject of marriage and family. It's quite realistic, very raw. And what's the reality? The reality is that, is that it's hard. It's hard to not be married and it's hard to be married, right? It's hard to be married and not be married. Now, both are true statements. When you're single, you receive hardships that singleness brings. It does, you do. And when you're married, you get the hardships that marriage brings. And I think we need to understand that every obstacle we face in whatever relational chapter we may be in our lives is regardless difficult. It's difficult. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's difficult, but you'll be okay. <clears throat> yeah, I, I got to confess right now. I was going to say this, but I'm going to. I remember I was talking to some young adult, well, whatever, um, a single person who was young, post-college, uh, fairly young professional, and, and the person said, you know, I was talking to them about their spiritual life, how, what's, how, how's it been, their devotions, and things of that nature, and, and they said, Pastor David, you, you don't understand, it's just, by the way, I've had people say, you don't understand, anyway, sorry, <clears throat> they said, you don't understand, Pastor David, I'm, I'm like really busy, this is me as a father with two kids, and I'm sorry, and I'm like, mm-hmm, okay, and, and I go, so how, how are you not busy, well, you know, this is right after work, you know, I'm forced to spend happy hour time with my, with my coworkers. Otherwise, I'll be considered like the social pariah and everything. And, and I have to do that. And next thing you know, I have to, you know, go home and take care of my dog and do all this stuff. And I just, I just don't have time. I, I'm sorry. I just don't have time. And, and I'm, I'm just thinking, trying to resist rolling my eyeballs all the way back into my brain. Um, but, but at the same time, I want to be sensitive. <laughs> Even though I'm really insensitive right now. But, you know... <laughs> But it's difficult. Whether you're single or whether you're married or recently single or whatever, it's, it's, it's difficult. And I think we just have to accept that. Another pressing issue here is really just having the, a good biblical understanding of what marriage and family is. Now, outside of the Christian circles or really just in the secular world, there's a lot of cynicism, isn't there, about marriage. There's a lot of fear about marriage because the way the people really just kind of, the people of the world, the way that they dream is really kind of the American dream. You know, it's interesting. When I did missions in Cambodia, they have the American dream. It's all about the American dream, and really it's not just American dream, but the dream that most people outside of Christ want. 
That is, we want marriage, we want family, we want kids, we want the white pick and fence, the whole stuff. And so when something along those lines, right, when it fails, whether it's the marriage or the children or the white pick and fence or the, or the, uh, the status or the degree, completion, all this stuff, when any of that stuff that we dream and aim for and hope for, whenever it fails, we get depressed. We fall into despair. Why? Because we're told by the world that getting into an Ivy League school will bring satisfaction. So we get in, but it doesn't satisfy us. So we hear, fine, if that doesn't satisfy, then we hear getting a good paying job will satisfy us. So we do, but again, it doesn't satisfy us. Then we think, okay, well, if that's not it, then how about a marriage? So we hear that getting married to the man or woman of our dreams is, is, is what, really we, what we should really aim and seek after. So we do, but again, they don't satisfy us. And so we're told, fine, if it's not the husband or wife, then maybe you need kids, right? We have kids, and so we do, but even then you're left unsatisfied and discontent. And so the world says, okay, if that's not it, then buy a house, get a fancy car, climb the social ladder, earn a couple more degrees, and do this, and get a little nip and tuck, go on long getaway vacations, all for the purposes of what? Satisfaction. To satisfy you, and so we do. But it doesn't satisfy us. You see, the world is, the world is frantically searching for something here to do what it's been promising us for our entire lives. If it's not this, then it'll be this. And so we do that, and it's not that, then it'll dangle something else in front of us. And so even Christians place such high emphasis on marriage and family to a fault, almost as if only when you're married and when you have kids will your life truly then begin. Have you ever thought about that? I'm serving at church, but no, once I get that, once I get married, then we can really start ministry. In fact, as a pastor, I even thought that. I thought, this is how I can really be used. Once I get married, then I can really just engage with those who are married. Once I have kids, I can then really engage with those who have kids. And so this is, this is the mentality, even as Christians, we place upon ourselves. I remember, in fact, when I was in Chicago for my freshman year in college, I attended a local Korean church. This church had a lot of young adults, and so there were several weddings throughout the year and a lot of people getting hitched. There was one particular sister, though. <clears throat> I was 18 years old. I mean, I was just there. There was this one particular sister who was in her late 20s, had a great professional job. She was financially independent. She was faithful, and she had a heart for the church. And in particular, she had a heart for the women of the church, for women's ministry, and all that. And here's the thing. All the guys of that church were just oogling over her, right? Like she was the hot tamale of the group. They all wanted her. And I remember a few of us, including her, we had gone to a uh, like a coffee shop, a cafe after church on the way to drop me back off on campus. And when we sat down sipping on coffee, a couple guys that were there, <clears throat> they're all good friends, a couple guys and a girl, they started asking this dear sister, by the way, by the way, this was all in Korean, so as far as I'm concerned, this conversation may not have even happened. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, so... If you're Korean, you want to talk to me Korean, just forget about it. Anyways, so, <clears throat> um, so why was I there? Free food, free ride. Okay, whatever. So these people start harassing her. They start harassing her. They actually said this, and I think if my interpretation <laughs> is correct, um, they said, is, is, is work all you want to do? Do you think you'll find fulfillment in that? Don't you know 
and I'm not going to say her name, not like she's going to hear this or anything, but she, they're going to say, they said, do you know how many guys want to marry you? Do you know how many guys want to marry you? Just pick one. Just pick one so the rest of us can move on. Just pick one. They'll be great to you. In fact, you know what? The new breed of Korean young adults at this church, they're different. They're not the traditional kind. They'll do your dishes. They'll even cook your food for you. And by the way, you're not getting any younger. I'm like, she's only 27 years old. For goodness sakes, I feel uncomfortable just sitting there sipping on my coffee, eating my creamy stuffed pastry, and I'm saying, God, let me get out of here. The attitude of marriage as the end-all, be-all is just completely wrong. It is. Because the Bible not once has ever shown Christ pointing to marriage saying, that's, that's what you need. Never once has Christ ever pointed to marriage saying, hey, you know that hopelessness, that despair, that poverty, the, the difficulty of your life? Marriage, that's what you need. No, no, he never once did that. Instead, the Bible shows us that even despite the weaknesses and even in the strengths of marriage, it all points to Christ as the one we need. Everything. You need Christ. Christ never says, you need that. He says, you need me. Now, that was my introduction because some of us, maybe many of us here, are wasting a lot of time right now. We're wasting a lot of time for a dream of a better life that we think was better when we were single or would be better if we were married. And this wishful thinking is, I believe, detrimental to our current spiritual state, regardless if you're married or not. And so seeing Christ as the one we need will become even more obvious as we go through this passage. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, stop wasting time. So I have a few points to make. My first one is simply this. <clears throat> In the family of grace, there will also be a family of suffering. Now, <clears throat> there are two things you have to know about the background of the story. So hear me out. There are a lot of things I'll be kind of repeating, but I think it'll be good for us. You have to know that Jacob, he came from a family chosen by grace. He was. He came from a ch family chosen by grace. But here's what's interesting. In that family of grace was also a family of suffering. It was also a family of suffering. This, you see the idea? It goes against the whole prosperity gospel, the whole health and wealth gospel, thinking that once you are saved and once you are a Christian, that life should be now easy peasy and comfortable. You see, that goes out the window. Because if you're graced by God, know that suffering will also come. That's just the reality of the Christian journey. We're not exempt from the harsh realities of life. And so even though this family is chosen by grace and chosen by God, it's what, it was also a family of suffering too. Don't think you're exempt. So Jacob had a grandfather named Abraham one day. God comes to Abraham and he says essentially, Abraham, do you see the world? Do you see the misery out there? Do you see the cruelty and the despair, the injustice? Do you see all the diseases, the death, the shame, the tragedy? Do you see all that? Well, Abraham, guess what? I'm going to start something. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to heal it. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to do all this through your family. And he says, one of your descendants will be the Messiah. God says, Abraham, and therefore, this is what has to happen. You need to know, Abraham, that in every single generation of your family, there will be children. But one of the children will be the seed. The seed. 
One child will be the messianic seed, and that child should be the head of the family, and that child must walk before me, and that child must pass the true faith along to the rest of their family because of all those children that you'll have, all the sands of the seas, as high as the, as the, as the stars in the universe, all those children, one of them will be the true seed, you see? One of them, that one seed will become the seed. That one prophet will become the prophet. That one priest will become the priest. And that one king will become the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's why this family that Jacob was a part of was such a special family. But in spite of all that, this is really the lesson all by itself, is that even though this is such a chosen and amazing and grace-filled family, it was also a family filled with suffering. Abraham had one son, Isaac, we know that. And when Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was pregnant, she had twins in her womb. God sent a prophecy to Isaac and said, you know what? The oldest can serve the younger. The oldest can serve the younger. What happens? Isaac ignores what God says. He puts his heart on Esau. He clearly favors the older one. He loves him more than the younger one, Jacob. And as a result, devastation occurs between the relationship of the two brothers. As they grow up, there's competition, there's strife, there's malice. Their characters are ravaged by this way because of the way that Abraham would dote on Esau. Esau grew up willful. He grew up proud. He grew up with no self-control, all because he knew he was the favored son of Isaac. And Jacob, what happened to him? He was always cast into shadow. He was always in the background. He knew that he got nothing, no crumbs. He knew that he was loved by his mom, but not by his dad. And so he had to survive. In order to survive, he turned into a liar. In order to survive, he turned into a deceiver. In order to survive, he became a manipulator. And you all know the story here. What happens is when they come of age, Jacob, he deceived his father one day. The father, he's old, he's blind. And so Jacob dresses up. As his older brother Esau, he goes in and gets the blessing. He gets the birthright. He gets the headship of the clan. And when Esau realizes what Jacob had done, Esau is mad and he vows to kill Jacob. And so Jacob has no choice but to run. He runs away. And he flees far, far away where his mother's relative takes him in. Uncle Laban takes him in. And Jacob, he's thinking life is over. And he's not sure if God screwed up or if he screwed up or if my family screwed up or if my father screwed up. But he knows something is a mess. He, he'll never fulfill his destiny. He's faithless now. He's all ruined. He's got no money, no homeland, no place. Nothing is all over. And so that's the story. That's the background here. But the story that we've just read here really has two parts. It has Laban's story and it has Leah's story. And I want to talk about Laban first of all. Laban is the uncle. Laban brings Jacob in as kind of as a charity case. Yeah, fine, you're my stupid little nephew. I guess I have to bring you in. Uh, what'd you do now? Right? And so Jacob's working for him as a, um, <clears throat> for a month as a shepherd. And all of a sudden, Uncle Laban, he sees something about Jacob. He goes, yeah, you're pretty good. You know what? In fact, you're, you're better than one of the typical shepherds I have here. In fact, you have some management capabilities, maybe. And so he realizes, Jacob realizes that if, Uncle Laban realizes that if I hire Jacob, my nephew, 
this good-for-nothing kid, the scrub that I'm being totally charitable to, if I bring him as a foreman, and he can, surely, he can really help my operations, because all Uncle Laban's thinking of is cha-ching. How can I make money off this guy? That's all he's thinking. And so he goes to Jacob, and he says, <clears throat> I want to give you a contract. What do you want in order to work for me? And Jacob says, Rachel, I got to have Rachel. Now, Jacob really screwed up there because when you're talking to a con artist, you never really know, let them know your weakness, right? It's like you never go to a car salesman. By the way, that's a horrible way <laughs> saying that all car salesmen are con artists. That's not my point, but my point is this. When you go to a car dealership, you don't say off the bat, this is what I'm willing to pay, right? And so as soon as Laban sees this, he realizes, man, the schmuck, this guy, my nephew, he'll do anything for my daughter. He'll do anything for Rachel. So Laban's got him. And so Laban thinks, I'm going to use this. I'm going to exploit this man's weakness to deal with two problems at once. And what are the two problems? The first one is this. How can I make lots and lots of money by exploiting his skill? How do I get out of this guy tremendous amount of valuable skill with very little pay for it so I can become a super-duper well, super wealthy man? That's his problem. How can I make as much as I can from this guy? But the second problem is this. He's got another daughter. Her name is Leah. The verse, <clears throat> you might remember verse 16 says, Now Laban had two daughters. The older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. It's like, Leah, yeah. Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Now, if you go into the different translations here, you'll find that every single one of the translations will describe Leah's eyes quite differently. Some will say that she had tender eyes. Some say that she had delicate eyes. Some will say that she had broken eyes because the word really simply means fragile or breakable. But no one really quite knows exactly what the word means. But here's the thing. It's really not that hard to, just, to understand what it is in the context of all things. When the text uses the word weak, does it mean that Leah's vision was weak? Some people think that. Well, if that was the case, shouldn't it say Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel's eyes were strong. Leah couldn't see so well, but Rachel could see really far. No. That's not what it says. It's not talking about how they looked. It's talking about how they looked. You get that? It's not about how they look with their eyes. It's talking about what they look like. What it's really saying is this. Uncle Laban had two girls, young girls. They weren't even women yet. And one of them was either cross-eyed, had protruding eyes, or some sort of eye disorder. Whatever it was, whatever the reason was, whatever her defect was, it was considered ugly. It was considered unattractive. But Rachel, wow, she was stunning. She was gorgeous. We have Leah, the protruding, weak eyes, and we have Rachel. One was the ugly duckling who would never turn into a swan. Oh. It's sad. And the other one was absolutely gorgeous. I'm not making this up. The Bible's saying this. And these two girls, they had to grow up together. I'm so glad I don't have a better looking brother. 
So Laban, he had a problem. And this is where the Bible is brutally honest. Laban thinks, I'll never marry this daughter off. I'll never marry her off. Look, I, I have a way to get rich and get rid of the daughter who would otherwise be around my neck for the rest of my life. This is the type of thought that Laban was having. That's the kind of man that he was. Look, this is sad. Some guy comes in and he's thinking, man, I, I can get rid of my daughter finally. I'm going to trick him. I suspect that most fathers, or at least good fathers, would make sure that their daughters married good men, vetted men, men they respect, men whom they knew would love and cherish their daughters, not so with Laban. He just wanted to get her out. He didn't care if she ended up with someone who hated her, who used her, or in this case, simply didn't love her. So what does he do? It's pretty interesting. Jacob says, look, I'll work for Rachel for seven years. What does Uncle Laban say in verse 19? You know, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man, so stay here with me. Now, mind you, he didn't say yes to Jacob. He said something that led Jacob to believe that he was saying yes. It's better for me that she should go to you than some stranger. There's no yes. It's like when you go to a car dealership and the salesman says, you know, the price of this car is X amount of dollars, and you say, wow, that's a good price. There's no way, shape, or form an agreement to actually buy the car. You're saying, wow, okay, that's great. So Uncle Laban here is using one of his sneaky tactics. Laban's saying, yeah, I guess it would be pretty good for her to have, for you to have her than anyone else, dot, dot, dot. Read the fine print. So Jacob, he works for seven years and says, now I've done my seven years. Send me my wife. Laban says, fine. And of course, at this time, a wedding feast was never just a one-day event. It was a week-long affair. Jacob was happy. He's getting married to the woman of his dreams, right? So they were having a wedding feast because now he's thinking, I got Rachel. I finally have something going right in my life. I've got 99 problems, but having a wife ain't one of them. I got my wife. I got him. And so everyone's feasting. Everyone's having a great time, and people are starting to drink. People are starting to get drunk, perhaps, and right in the middle of the first night comes the wife, and she's all veiled up, and they embrace, and they say their vows. They get married, and then they go into the tent, and they go to bed together. And verse 25 says this. After they have consummated the marriage, verse 25 says, but when morning came, behold, it was Leah. Jacob, imagine his surprise, goes straight to Uncle Laban and says, what have you done to me? What have you done this? Why have you done this? And Laban says, are you stupid? This is custom. This is tradition. How do you not know this? Why would I, why would I marry off the younger one when the older one isn't married yet? You're foolish. This is the way we do things here. Come on. The older daughter has to be married before the younger one. And so lovesick, obsessed, passionate, Jacob says, what do I have to do? And he says, I'll tell you what, you can marry Rachel too. But you got to work for another seven years. And Jacob says, I'll do it. That's how obsessed, that's how much I love Rachel. And because of all this greed, because of all this manipulation and stuff that's going around in these, between these two deceptive guys, poor Leah. She was thrown into a life of torment 
Leah, who probably could have just, you know, hardened her heart and stayed single for a long time, she, she probably could have dealt with the fact that, you know what, I'm unwanted, fine, whatever. I, I, I'm not lovely, as pretty as my sister, fine, whatever. She could have calloused her heart and hardened it and said, you know what, fine, I don't need a man. I'll just do my own thing, I'll just be with my family, serve them, do what I can, and all that stuff. She knew that she wasn't marketable, she knew that she, didn't, she wasn't as attractive as her sister, and so she, she could have very well just hardened her heart. But because of these men now, she is now put into a situation where she is now married to a man who does not love her. But not only that, not only married to a man who does not love her, but she is also married to a man who loves someone else. And that someone else is right beside her. And that person beside her is her sister. Can you imagine how difficult it must have been for poor Leah. Now, the last verses of this passage, I think, are one of the saddest verses I know of anywhere in the Bible or any place. Because every time she names a child, every time she has a baby and she names a child, when she begins to have children, she says this, Now, maybe, my husband will love me. Now, maybe, I'll have some sort of meaning in my life. Now maybe my husband will see me differently and I'll be satisfied and he'll be satisfied in me. Now maybe people will look at me differently without pity. Well, maybe now, maybe, here's my baby. I have some worth, value in your eyes. And hopefully life will get better. And so she names Reuben. Reuben means I'm seen. And she names another one Simeon, means I'm heard. And she, and she names another one Levi, which means I'm attached. And every child that comes along, she says, now maybe, finally, I am visible. Now maybe, finally, I am heard. Now maybe, finally, he'll cleave to me. See? Surely now, after having these babies for you, my husband will now love me. I will have worth in, his, worth in his eyes. Someone will see me with value. And it never happens. It never happened for her. And folks, it will never happen for you. But in the last verse, this is what we read. In the last verse we read, and finally she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, which means praised and she stopped having children. Now, what does that mean for us, guys? Here's a couple points. Firstly, know this. <clears throat> you never do sin. Sin does you. Okay? As in, yes, we commit sin, but you never commit sin. Sin commits you. Care look carefully here. People think that when you do a sin, when you break God's law, when you lie, when you use somebody, when you trample on someone, when you sin, you feel like it's just an event, a one-time deal that happened a minute ago, an hour ago, a week ago, a year ago, and it's just an action that kind of disappears after some time, but it's not. The Bible says that when you sin, you don't just do or commit an event and then just pass on. Instead, he says, you create and you release this devastating kind of force that circulates and careens around your entire life indefinitely. Look what's going on here. There's so many examples, but I want to just talk about this one here. Look at what Isaac does to Jacob, remember? 
Look at how he favors Esau, the older son. Look at what he does to Jacob. He completely ignores him. But now look, look what's going on. A complete reversal. Jacob is doing the same, very same thing to Leah that his father did to him. And not only that, because Jacob does back to Isaac what Isaac did to him. And eventually, if you keep going down the line, the fact that Jacob does this to Leah means that Leah's children, they grow up and they hate Rachel's children. They hate him. They're warring because Leah's children hate Rachel's children because of the way in which Jacob sinned and deceived. They eventually, what? You guys know the story? They sell Joseph into slavery. They hate him. And then they deceive Jacob and say, hey, dad, yeah, he's dead. What happens to Jacob? He goes through hell. Hell begets hell. Lies beget lie. Sin begets sin. You never just sin. You, never, you don't just do it. It does you. You never sin and just pass away. Sin is like a stone dropped in the water. You see, there will be a ripple effect. Don't ever think, if I just commit sin, that'll be it. Hush, hush, no problem. Even in the privacy of my lives, even if I commit sin, hush, hush, no problem. No one's going to know. Uh-uh. It'll impact you. Sin is never just a one-time deal that we come in, hope that fades into the background. No, it'll make its presence known by re-emerging in moments throughout your life. That's the first bad news. The second one is this, is that if you continue to place hope in anything outside of Christ, you will be disappointed. If you place your hope in anything outside of Christ, you will be disappointed. I want to say something quickly. When you read this passage, right, your heart goes out to whom? Leah. Like, I love Leah, and I'm protective of her, right? You, you, you pity her. You feel bad for her, but you love her too. You're like, oh, I'm rooting for you. I want you to do well, but before a minute, I have to tell you something here, that she actually represents something bad. One of the most fascinating things in this narrative is the way that it turns on you, because here Jacob is saying, finally, finally, I got what I want. I'm going to have happiness in this life. I did my seven years, and I'm going to get married to the woman of my dreams, to my success, to my hope, to my ambitions, my dreams, all that stuff. Finally, finally, I got Rachel, but behold, in the morning it was Leah. No matter what your hopes are for a project, no matter what your hopes are in marriage, no matter what your hopes are in terms of love, no matter what your hopes are for a career, no matter what you have hopes in, in the morning, if it is not in Christ, it will be Leah. Does this make sense? No matter what you think is Rachel, the savior of your life, the one you say, I want that, I need that. If it is not Christ, it will be Leah. C.S. Lewis in his chapter on hope, he says this so brilliantly. Most people, if they really learn to look into their own heart, would know that they do want what they <clears throat> know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can ever really satisfy. He says, I am not speaking what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or failure of holidays and so on. I'm speaking, he's saying, 
of the very best possible ones. There is always something we have grasped at. There is always something that first moment of longing but fades away in reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery may be excellent. It turned out to be a good job, but in the end, it will still evade us. He's saying ultimately, in this world, whatever you pursue, in the morning, it will be Leah. Did you get that? It means you can fulfill your hopes. Get that. You can actually fulfill your hopes and your dreams. You know that job you want? You can actually get it. You know that woman that you want to marry? You can actually marry her. Those kids that you want? You can actually have that. But here's the thing about God's creation, the way that we're wired, is that even the fulfillment of our dreams will not satisfy us. Dissatisfaction is not found in the regret of unachieved hopes. It's in the moment that you do achieve it and then realize it's still nothing. Does that make sense? You said it, you've heard people say it. Oh, I'm going to have this type of career. I'm going to get this type of husband, this type of wife. I'm going to live in this place. I'm going to do this thing. If you look for anything outside Christ to be your satisfaction, brothers and sisters, know this, in the morning, it will always just be Leah. Eventually, you're going to have to realize, and you're going to see it. And when you do, there are only four possible ways of really responding to that situation, to your circumstance. There's only four ways to go, and you have to choose one of them because it's going to totally shape the rest of your life. And the first one is this. When that happens, you can either blame the things you have and say, you know what? I've got to get a better one. i got to get a better woman. I need a better marriage. I need a better car, a better job, a better man. Or secondly, you can blame yourself and just hate yourself and spiral into a state of depression, anxiety, and self-hatred. Or thirdly, you'll blame life, and you'll harden yourself, and so you'll never hope for anything at all. You'll just live with no expectations. You'll become completely hardened of heart. You'll become callous and desensitized to all things. Or fourthly, you can say, if there's nothing in this world that can satisfy me, then it means that I, this longing that I have, is made for something that is beyond this world. If there's nothing here in this world that can excite me and fill me, then there has to be something else. What's your response going to be to that? If you choose the first one, it'll just make you a fool. If you choose the second one, you'll become a safe self-hater. If you choose the third one, you'll become just a hard cynic. But if you choose the fourth one, it'll make you surrender to the one who came from outside of this world and into ours. This one will make you a Christ follower. I got some good news, folks. Turn to your neighbor and say, thank God. <clears throat> God is attracted to the weakest. Turn to your neighbor and say, God's attracted to you. <laughs> I'm weak. How about you? I'm a weak man. I am. He doesn't just work with and work through, but he works in the weakest. He works in the broken. And this is what's so amazing and so astounding, shocking at the same time about Leah. Leah was going through a difficult time, maybe going through really a lot of self-hatred, a lot of bitterness, a lot of anger. How did I get into this? How do I get out of this, really? I always knew I was homely. I always knew that in the eyes of the world, I was nothing, and now every day, Every day, I'm being reminded of what I am in comparison to what she is. 
Every day is being thrust into my face of how unloved and unwanted and undesired I am. How am I going to survive this? Can you imagine living in a type of household and in a type of marriage where you are just nothing? And so she says, I got it, a child. Maybe if I have kids. Maybe if I have kids, a child. So every time she has a child, she cries out, she faces her husband, and she says, now my husband will save me. She has another child, now maybe my husband will love me. But he didn't love her. He still didn't want her. And so child after child, Leah hoped that Jacob would change. Child after child, she had hoped that Jacob would change, that he would be transformed, and that he would see her the way that she's always wanted to be seen, and that he would love her the way that she always wanted to be loved, but he never did. He never changed. So what do we find in the text? We find out that she begins to call him the name of Yahweh. Yahweh is a name for the Lord, for those who are brought into the history of salvation. It's not a generic term like Elohim or just God. No, it's the name that God is God, but he is my God. I am dependent on him. He is in control. He is my reality. He will never end. He holds the universe. He is constant. He is truth. He is sovereign. That is Yahweh. And so Leah, she began crying out to God, Yahweh. And the change that she hoped would happen in her husband's life began to change her life instead. Do you see what happens when you allow yourself to surrender before the presence of God? Do you see what happens in the difficulties of your life, in your relationships, or whatever it is? As much as we say, God, change him, God says, I'm going to change you. If you go back and read this passage, she turns to her husband until the very end. And at the very, very end, something changes, something radically changes. Every time she says, now my husband will love me. Now my husband will love me. Now my husband will love me. And then she conceived again, and she gave birth to a son. And she said, for the first time and the last time, this time I will praise the Lord. No talk about her husband. What happened? Through this suffering, she stopped turning to her husband as Savior. She stopped looking to her children as Savior. She stopped looking to anything else, and she said, I am going to praise the Lord. I am going to worship Yahweh. And at that moment, she got her life back. And at that moment, Laban and Jacob and all the people, whoever abused her and used her, all the idols that she allowed to run in her life, all the desires for validation and worth from being a mother to being a wife, to be loved at that point, she stood up and all that stuff fell to the ground because she got her life back, because she realized, no, all I need here is Yahweh. And so she finally surrendered to the one who truly loved her to her Yahweh, to her Savior, to her bridegroom. You see, the thing about God is this. When he sees someone who's not loved, he shows us that there's a heavenly bridegroom, Jesus Christ. The Bible says so. The Bible says that he's the bridegroom, that he's not just king and we're his servants, that he's not just shepherd and that we're his sheep, but what happens is that he becomes our bridegroom and we're his bride. Jesus Christ came to earth and died. He left 
his glory, to enter into humility, to live amongst his creation. And he lived a perfect life that we can live, and he died the death that we deserve. Why? So that when we believe in him, we become his bride. He has shown us that despite all our ugliness, despite all our weak eyes, despite the wretchedness of our lives and our lives being fully known to him, the wretchedness of all that, yet he still says, I love you. I love you. He still fully commits to us. He still fully died for us. He still fully loves you. You know that? If you're a person who gets upset because you're not married, when you think of weddings, you think of, again, another one. Maybe you're, maybe you're bitter. Maybe you become cynical. Maybe you're desperate to be married. Marriage is not going to solve it. It's just not. You cannot look to anything but Jesus. In heaven, we have a Father that will deal with all of our imperfect fathers here. In heaven, we have a brother that will deal with all our broken families here. In heaven, we have a spouse that will deal with all our imperfect spouses. And until we make Jesus the one, until we say that, Jesus, you are my God, until we say, Jesus, you are my bridegroom and I am your bride, until we can say, this time I will praise the Lord, we'll never be able to deal with all the imperfections around us. If you're a person today who's searching for God, you need to understand this. No matter what it is that you're pursuing, whether it's a person, a job, a dream, you'll wake up one day and you'll realize it was Leah. You were never meant to settle for the things of the world, but instead surrender yourself to the one who so loved the world. Surrender your life over to Jesus today and you will have what is completely supreme, and you will be satisfied in him. Amen? Let's pray. So who are you trying to appease? Who are you... But what are you trying to pursue after? What is your Jacob, if you will? Or rather, what is your Rachel? You see, for Jacob, Rachel was his savior. For Leah, Jacob was her savior. We're all looking for something. And we're hoping one day that when we wake up, it'll be Rachel, but it won't. It never will. What is it? Maybe right now some of you guys who are single, you're thinking, you're putting your life on hold because you want marriage. And I get that. It's a reality for many of us. In fact, it was even a reality at a moment in my life too, thinking that if I got married, that this will be, my life will somehow be better. If I had kids or more kids, it will somehow be better then replace that marriage with something else. Maybe if I complete school, maybe if I get that degree or get that government job or whatever, it will get better. What will get better? Yeah, you might have a few more bucks in your bank account. You might be able to drive a nicer car. But think about what is actually getting better. If your spiritual life is not getting better, then you, do you know what's happening? You can, you can have a Bill Gates type of income, but you will be spiritually dead. So what is getting better? 
Ask yourself that. What are you calling out a Savior whose name is not Christ? Whatever it is, got to let it go. And like Leah, time after time, pray by God's grace that you'll see one day that only he is to be praised. Let's take a moment before we go into our last song, simply pray a prayer. Check your heart, really. God, what am I placing first before you? What's my idol? What is the one thing that I feel like will complete me, will satisfy me if I get this? The thing that I feel if I get, I can hold my head up high in front of my friends and say, nah, see, here's what I got now. Whatever it is, surrender it. Because at the end of the day, it'll only be Leah.